Hallelujah. Could we turn our Bibles to Matthew chapter 16, starting in verse 13? Starting in verse 13. It might sound familiar to you. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what do you, what about you, he asked, who do you say that I am? Simon plucks up the courage and answers, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus replies, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades, the gates of hell, will not overcome it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. Jesus, as we come before you, as we read and listen to your word, Lord God, we make a commitment right now that our hearts are open, our ears are open, our posture is in a position to receive from you so that we can give later. Lord Jesus, I thank you. I thank you for stirring in our hearts. Lord, use, use my mouth. Lord, not, not my words, but your words to be communicated. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So if you haven't, rec- uh, if, if you didn't know, this is the passage that we studied last week in church. And this passage is so powerful, so packed full of things that we have to revisit it. We have to come back to it. So we're going to give a little bit of a, of a recap of what we talked about last week. Jesus is building his church. Despite all of our dysfunction, Whether we realize it or not, he is building and forming the spotless bride to be ready for the second coming of Jesus. He gives us the revelation that you are the Christ, the son of the living God. He gave that to Peter. The father gave that. And he also gave mission. He calls us to be people of revelation And at the same time, he calls us to be people of mission. Last week, we talked about how many people want revelation. They want vision. They want dreams. They want to interact with the supernatural. But they don't necessarily want to put their their muscle into the working out of that revelation. They just want to keep on receiving revelation. The problem with that is that the revelation fuels the vision. It fuels the mission. So, Jesus articulates in this passage, flesh and blood did not reveal that to you, but my Father in heaven, and he will build his church on this rock, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Last week, we talked about how the mission is to storm the gates of hell, that Jesus has created such victory by what he has done that now we, the army of God, Go and storm the gates of hell and reclaim that which Satan has taken away. That's the mission of the church. I was so struck when Pastor Mamusha spoke last week. He said something very powerful. Our participation in the mission has eternal implications for others. Eternal implications. We are part of the decision-making process of where people spend eternity. You and me, we're part of that decision-making process for people. So this, we talked a lot about revelation last week. And this week, we're going we're, we're gonna to dive a little bit deeper. Are you ready? All right. When Jesus asked the question, Who do you say that I am? He asked the question to all of the disciples. Who do you say that I am? That is second masculine plural, okay? That means that all of you, 
uh, he's talking to all of them. But it was the person who answered the question that actually got an identity transformation. The question was for everybody, but it was Peter who stepped up and said, ah, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And it was then that Jesus said, ah, you're not going to be called Simon anymore. Actually, we're going to change your name into Peter. And from now on, you will be identified as Peter. Why is this significant for us? Unless we respond to the question, who is Jesus? We can be around Jesus. We can hang out with the people who follow Jesus. But at the end of the day, we will, always, we will be the same old person, untransformed, unchanged person that we always are. But if we respond to the question, who is Jesus? And like Peter, we say, ah, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Transformation happens in our lives. We go from being the ordinary old person that we are into the new the new man, the Bible says, from the old man to the new man. Our identities shift and they're never the same. The reason why I bring this up is because it was when Peter had the revelation of who Jesus was that Peter's identity actually came into focus. Many people... Uh, 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 sometimes things happen in life where our I, uh, struggles, we have struggles, our identities get, get shaken. And, and people say to me all the time, oh, I just got to take time to figure myself out. I got I to gotta figure out who I am. Manam, manam. Have you heard this? I've, I've probably said this. But let's, let's be clear, family. Let's not kid ourselves here. Let's stop focusing on ourselves and trying to figure ourselves out. If we focus on Jesus, everything else inside of us is going to be aligned. Amen? If we can actually focus on Jesus' identity, then our identity is going to fall into place. The revelation of Jesus' function, identity, and purpose will initiate the revelation of your function, identity, and purpose. Let's not try and chase after our own identity before we find out his first. So this revelation is powerful. And God gave Peter this revelation. So that's what we talked about last week. This week, I want us to, to, to soak a little bit more in this whole concept of the gates of hell will not prevail against it, against the mission of the church. What is this mission? Who's part of it? And what's our role? So what ingredients make up this mission. Now, um, in order to talk about ingredients, there's different things, components that come inside this mission. In order to discuss about this, I'm going to build an illustration. So let's say you had gone through a terrible, terrible sickness. Okay, and through the process of this sickness, you almost die, but you're working so hard to find the cure for the sickness. And through this journey, you actually discover, develop, and get the cure for this terrible sickness. Hallelujah. Woo! Right? Then you're hanging out with your best friend. And all of a sudden, your best friend starts showing the exact same symptoms that you were encountering prior, a long time ago, when you had the sickness. Would you not go to whatever lengths to make sure to convince your friend to take the medicine that cured you and give it to them and have them take the same medicine? Wouldn't you as a friend? Only a good friend would do that. You would, you would try and convince them. You would, you would preach at them. You would draw diagrams. You would show them all the, all the things inside of the medicine that cured you. All of these different things in order for them to be saved from the sickness that you had. Right? Uh, growing up in my, uh, in my life, I actually was quite sick as a child. 
I had uh, different things going on in my body, one of which I lived with for a long time is migraine headaches, painful headaches all the time. And uh, I had these all the way up through as a young adult and then even into our early marriage. And so my wife uh, and I, this one day, we I think we went into the mountains or something uh, up high. I got dehydrated. Uh, and I became very sick with this this headache. A, a migraine headache came on, and so I'm throwing up and all these things. And so we get home, and you know what I want to do? I just want to go in my bed, and I want to close the blinds, and I just want to get over this thing. And I'm just going to try and sleep it off, endure the pain. Let's let's start again tomorrow, right? That's That's what I'm thinking. So I'm in my bed, and right is I'm just like almost touching a little bit of rest, a little bit of sleep. I hear this sound coming from downstairs. And then my fears became true when I hear the door is slammed open and in walks none other than my wife. And in her hand is a glass of water with some medicine, but mainly the glass of water. And she says, Jesse, get up. It's kind of how she sounds. And she thrusts the glass of water into my face. And I'm saying, no, no, I just need to sleep. I just got to endure this thing and get over with it. I just Jesse, be quiet. Drink this. And it's like, okay, okay. And so I drink the water, and, and, and then I hand it back to her. No, drink all of it. Oh, okay. And I drink all of it, and I give it back to her. And then she promptly goes, and slams the door. And she leaves. And so I'm like, okay, now I'm done. Now I can kind of try and get back to sleep. And so as I'm fading, trying to endure and get over the pain, I'm almost to that sleeping point, and then my wife comes once again, opens the door, and she says, Jesse, get up, sit up, and there she has another glass of water, and I'm like, no, no, I just need to sleep. She's like, no, you need to drink water, and she thrusts it into my face and makes me drink the water, (laughs) and I drink the water, and then she leaves. Why is she doing that? Why is she, she, she taking care of me? She's making sure that I get what I need. Why is she doing that? Because she loves me. All of me. Right? She loves me. She's motivated. She knows what I need. Because I've gotten dehydrated, she knows that I need to be replenished. So she shoves a bunch of water into my body so that I can recover. But she also loves me. And so the combination of her having what I need, knowing what I need, and being compelled with love forces her into this mission. She is driven to help me. If if she had the, the know-how that she, she knew what I needed, I needed water, I needed some medicine in order to recover, but she didn't love me, guess what would happen? She'd stay downstairs, she wouldn't do anything. And if she had love, she'd, she'd be by my bedside, she'd just be like watching me be in pain, but she wouldn't be able to do anything about it because she didn't have the medicine. In the same way, If we as a church, in fact, this is mission here. In order to go on mission, you must have both the love and you must have both the truth. The the love and the medicine. The love and the truth in order to go on mission. If you only have one, you have no mission. You must have both the love and the truth to be compelled unto mission. This is where Christians find themselves. This is is if we truly encounter God, if we have the the revelation of who he is, the truth of who he is, and we have the love from him, 
we are compelled into mission. Amen? Jesus said he was on mission. In fact, he refused to put himself into privacy. He constantly was going into public because he had this mission. He both had the love and the truth that society, that humanity needed. Jesus knew his mission. My question to us today is, do you know yours? And then the follow-up question to that is, do you have the love needed to accomplish it? And do you have the truth, the medicine, in order to be driven to accomplish it? I pray, Lord Jesus, that we would be the kinds of Christians, the kinds of believers that encounter your love so deeply, encounter your truth so, so profoundly that we would have no other choice than to go into mission, than to, to, to go and rob the gates of hell from what has, been, uh, what has been taken from you, Lord God, and take it and redeem it back into the kingdom of his beloved son. In Jesus' name, I thank you. I thank you, God, that you have given us everything we need in order to go into mission. You gave us your love and you gave us your truth. We receive it now in Jesus' name. Amen. The gates of hell will not prevail against the church. This is the mission of the church. So, going back to the passage in Matthew chapter 16. The disciples, they, uh, they start to see, ah, uh, okay, we have this revelation that Jesus is the Messiah. And then we also see that Jesus, he's going to build and establish his church. He is the one building the church, not us, he. But then also the church has this victorious mission. And we have a part to play. This is what the disciples are, they're doing their check, their checklist. Okay, we have a part to play and you're giving us authority? You're giving us the keys? We have an authority in this mission? Man, as a disciple, it doesn't get any better than this right here. They are stoked. They are so excited because now what they have thought this entire time that Jesus is the Messiah, now Jesus has come out and he said, yep, that's me. They are so giddy with excitement. They are their blood is pumping right here. They're like, they're like, woo, come on, let's storm the castle. Let's do this thing. That's where they're coming from, huh? Okay. Now, let's read Matthew 16, verse 21. This is the next verse. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Now Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but mere human concerns. Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You don't have the things of God in mind, but the things of man. Peter, the mouthpiece for God a moment earlier, who said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. He heard directly, clearly from the Father. Now becomes a mouthpiece for Satan in an instant. Peter, whose identity is recently changed, just changed, went from Simon to Peter, in an instant threatens the purpose and identity of Jesus. Peter, who was recently, recently just encountered the voice of the Almighty, later is rebuked by Jesus, by God himself. Okay, it's important that we understand this passage is very much linked to the previous one. This passage is hard and encouraging all at the same time. 
So before you brace yourself for like a long service, let's, uh, l- let's understand that there's an encouragement here. God doesn't expect us to have everything figured out in order for us to hear his voice. Isn't that good? Peter, with all of his dysfunction, all of his preconceived ideas, he still heard God correctly. <sighs> and if Peter can hear God correctly, guess what? You and I can too. We don't have to have all our ducks in a row for us to be able to hear the voice of the Almighty God. If you're a sheep, you can hear. Isn't that awesome? I love that. And here's the challenge. It shows how quickly we can be swayed from one influence to another. Now, I got to explain a little bit of this passage. Despite popular belief, Satan wasn't the one who sent Jesus to the cross. He wasn't the one who sent him to the cross. The Father did. Satan did everything in his power to keep Jesus from going to the cross because he knew what was in the cross. He knew what sacrifice meant. He knew what blood meant. And so he would do whatever he could to try and prevent Jesus from going and suffering and, and, and getting up on that cross. Why else would Jesus rebuke Peter for this? As soon as he starts talking about how he must go and suffer and die and be raised up, all of a sudden there's opposition to what Jesus had just said, his true purpose, his true mission. So Satan's trying to resist, resist the cross, keep Jesus from the cross, Now, here's the thing, is that Peter and all the disciples would have totally been game and would have agreed with Satan. You know why? It's because their understanding of what the Messiah would do was different from Jesus' understanding of what the Messiah would do. Their understanding is that he is going to free us, deliver us, and kick these oppressors, a.k.a. the Romans, out of here. We are going to have freedom, free at last, my God, free at last, okay? That was their mentality. That's how they're showing up. So when Peter receives the revelation that he is the Messiah, guess how he's applying that revelation? Peter got the revelation right. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. But his implementation and interpretation of it was completely wrong. When Jesus confirms that he is the Messiah, Peter is thinking, we're finally going to get back at those Romans. We're finally, this is the moment that we've all been waiting for. He had his own preconceived ideas of what the Messiah meant and what he would do. When Jesus started disclosing his future suffering, Jesus' plans actually threatened Peter's plans. It exposes that Peter was actually serving and getting behind his own vision. When he heard, when, when actually out of his own mouth, the revelation that Jesus was the Messiah, in his interpretation, validated his vision, his desires. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? Same revelation different interpretations, different plans. God is a God who speaks. And this is something that we want to celebrate. This is something that we get to carry, every single one of us. We can hear the voice of God because we're sheep, because we're sons and daughters. How awesome. The thing is, is that the mission he intends for us might be accomplished in a way that we never expect. Our interpretation and his interpretation of what we hear might be very different. I want to give you a little illustration or a little example. God, eight years ago, called my wife and I here to Ethiopia. And he spoke uh, powerfully, dynamically. And one of the things he said was, Jesse and Haley, spark a missional movement from Ethiopia to Africa and the rest of the world. <sighs> okay. Now, we, we got that revelation We came here, 
We're having talks with Abba and Emma. We're having talks with PZ and Pastor Saleh and Fitzum. And I remember the decision. All right, we're going to move to Ethiopia. We're going to obey this call, this revelation. And so I remember us uh, even eating with Pastor Saleh and Fitzum at Catania. And uh, they really treated us well, you know. They ordered kilkil, and they, they wanted us to, you know, uh, they, were, they were soothing us, you know. And so here we are, we're talking, and they asked these questions. Like, when, when can you come? What are you going to do? Those are pretty important questions. Well, I can tell you that we had a lot of different answers. I, I, we answered all those questions. But the thing is, is that our what and God's what can be totally different. Our how and his how can be totally different. And that's exactly what we experienced. Our win and his win, totally different worlds. In fact, we got, our visa got denied multiple times. I went through a, a serious health crisis, all while we were thinking that we would already be in Ethiopia. The reality is that every single experience leading up to us actually landing in this country, we needed in order to actually prepare and fulfill the mission that God was calling us to. I have seen many a person's faith be derailed. Not because God didn't speak, but because their interpretation of what God had said didn't come to pass the way they thought that it would. I really, the same thing that happened to Peter happens all the time in the body of Christ today. And my hope and heart today is that we would save some some souls from getting derailed because we can hear God. We can hear his revelation, but it's our interpretation that can kind of cloud and get things, get us confused in our heads. So my, my encouragement to us, body, is that can we be humble while we hear God's voice? Can we be strong and courageous? Can we be confident in Jesus while humbly walking out the interpretation of that call? Zimalecho. Each and every one of you are carrying a call. It's not just the pastors or the ministers that are carrying a call. No. We are all called in every sphere that we're in. And so it's important that we walk out that call. But again, our interpretation in God's might be different. See, the thing is, is that what Peter hadn't factored in is that the cross is baked in the cake. The cross is baked in the cake of the mission. What do I mean? What do you put inside of a cake? You've got flour, you've got sugar, you've got some eggs. Oh no, it's, it's yitzom. You don't have eggs. You have vinegar, okay? You put some salt in there. There's different ingredients. And, and everybody wants cake. Yeah, I want cake. I want cake. But the thing is, is that we don't always realize what's already baked into the cake before we eat it. Jesus' mission is victorious, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. But the victory comes through carrying the cross. It's baked in the cake. Matthew 16, or Matthew 16 verse 24, the next verse, guys, says, anyone who wishes to follow me must deny themselves, pick up their cross, and follow me. Anyone who wishes to follow me. So not only does he rebuke Peter, but he redefines what it looks like for Peter to be on Jesus' team. Jesus is not only redefining the Messiahship, but as he's redefining the Messiahship, he's also redefining discipleship and what it looks like. Our mission is always defined by his Your call is always defined by his call. And it is when we understand his messiahship that then we can understand our own discipleship too. You tracking with me? Okay. 
Jesus's mission had so much love in it and so much truth in it that he was compelled to go to the cross. Compelled, moved so strongly to the cross. And I believe, church, it's interesting. You know, I think over the last 2,000 years, we've gotten used to the fact that the Messiah would have to die. The Messiah would have to suffer in order for us to be redeemed, right? We're used to that fact. That's kind of a household thought for the body of Christ. But I think like Peter, I think we're still struggling with the fact that we actually have to pick up our cross too. That we're adjusting to that fact too. You know, when uh, in moments of revelation, it, it's a very powerful time because we actually make commitments based on the revelation. Like my wife and I, when God spoke to come to Ethiopia, we had a response and we said, yes, we'll go, right? People, people say different vows to God based on a revelation. Yes, I'll be a leader. But then as they're leading they start really, what's with everybody criticizing me? What's with all this, I'm getting hit on the right and hit on the left and da, 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 da. Well, guess what? It was baked in the cake. When, when people read uh, Psalm 2, ask of me and I'll give the nations to you as an inheritance. Yes, Lord, yes, I'll go on your mission. And then God sends you to somewhere where there's no injera. It's like, what? No injera? guess what? It's baked in the cake. I love bacon. And God sent me to the one country that doesn't have any bacon. Not the one country. Top 10. It's baked in the cake. We want the victory, but without the battle. We want the freedom, but with no cross. But if we're going to share in the triumph of Jesus, we also have to share in his sufferings. So, why on earth would we want to join a mission that has the cross baked into it? Why? I hope you're thinking that. I hope you're, you're asking that question because it's a legitimate question. Why on earth would we go on a mission with the cross built into it? What's the point? The point is in John chapter 17, verse 13. Jesus is talking, actually praying to his father. And he's praying in front of the disciples. And he's talking about his mission. And this is what he says. I am coming to you, father. I'm coming to you now. But I say these things about mission while I am still in the world so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I am coming to you now, but I say these things about mission while I am still in this world so that they may have the full measure, the full measure of my joy within them. Why is it worth taking on this mission with the cross baked in the cake? It's because the result of mission is always joy. Always joy. The way you know you are on mission is if you have joy. I'm not talking about your joy. I'm talking about his joy in us. So that they may have the fullness of my joy within them. Wow. I want joy. I really want joy. What was Jesus' mission? Because we put ourselves in God's place, he put himself in our place. Because we substituted ourselves for God, he substituted himself for us. We took what he deserves and so he took what we deserve. He took on the punishment. Okay, that was his mission. That's why God sent him here to the cross. Does anyone disagree? No, that was his mission. Now, here's what's interesting. What compelled Jesus to do that? We see in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, halfway through. As he, as Jesus is contemplating, as he's taking on, okay, this is my mission. This is what I'm going to have to do as the Father sends me. 
he reacted like this. He said, for the joy sent before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. His mission is the source of our joy. Father, I send them on mission so that they may have the fullness of my joy. That's what Jesus prayed. His last prayer, that you and I would have the fullness of joy. He sends us on mission. As you sent me, now I send you. That's what mission means. Missio, it's from the Latin meaning to be sent. As I sent you, or as you sent me, now I send them. Church, we have a mission. And there are different things baked in the cake. But before you, you contemplate whether you're able to swallow it, understand that there is a joy set before you. There is a joy that's also baked in the cake. Amen? The lack of joy in our lives, then, is rooted in our lack of mission. If we are struggling to find the joy of God in our lives, then we might have to retrace our steps back to, okay, what's my mission? Am I fulfilling the mission of God on my life? A long time ago, back in the early 80s, my father, he uh, worked as a, a security manager for this defense contractor in the United States that was working on something very, very secret. They even made every employee sign an agreement that they would never talk about it until this product was released. This product was the SR-71 Blackbird, the fastest plane in the world. It goes three times the speed of sound. And so it was a very secret project. And so they're, they're working on it, working on it. And eventually it was, it was commissioned. But these, the, before it was commissioned, there were two engineers that had the honor of going into the hangar where it was. They went into the hangar and they started, uh, they were, had the honor of getting a tour of the plane. So these engineers, they're high level engineers and they're giddy. We get to see the fastest airplane in the world. Ooh. They want to see how does it work? What is it designed like? How can it go three times the speed of sound, right? They have all these questions. And so the, the lead engineer is, is giving these two guys a tour, and they're in the hangar. They're about 100 meters away, and they're walking towards this, the SR-71 Blackbird. And as they get closer, they're looking and looking, and they see... They see there's something underneath the plane. And as they're going, they, they, they look closer and closer. And it's like, those are buckets under the plane. And not only that, there's something dripping from the airplane into the buckets. And so these engineers, they get closer. And there's like five, six buckets around all in different parts of the airplane. And they're, they're like, um, wow, you guys have been working for years on this. And it's leaking. Um, and so they, they kind of pluck up the courage and like, um, yeah, senior engineer, uh, it's leaking. It's dripping. Is it supposed to do that? I don't think so. And the lead engineer, he just smiles because, and he, this was his answer. He said, yeah, it's leaking, but we didn't design it to stay in the hangar. We designed it to fly at 60,000 feet, going three times the speed of sound. It's when it goes that fast and it gets that hot that everything closes up and functions properly. Church, you and I were not made to sit. You and I were not made to be in the hangar. You and I were made to soar. You and I were built for mission. And it's when we're on mission that the things that are exposed on our sides, the things that don't work right, start to close up and start to make sense when we're on mission. 
Jesus said, as I was sent, now I send them. You and I are on this mission to go and storm the gates of hell and redeem into the, the kingdom of his beloved son. You and I have that mission now. Jesus is not here. You and I are. And so my question is, do you have the love? And do you have the truth that will compel you to knock on that door and say, give me those people. Give me those things back because Jesus paid for it. You were built for mission. I just wonder how many things are going wrong in our lives. We're leaking here. This is going wrong over here. And it's, it's actually because, it's not that Satan is attacking us. It's actually because we're in the hangar. And we're designed to be soaring. We're designed to be on mission. I just want to invite you to experiment. You know what you're leaking. You know how things aren't working out over here and here and here. Could I just invite you to have a dialogue with Jesus on this? Just invite him to, to speak into, hey, what is, am I, am I fulfilling the mission? Am I fulfilling the mission that you have assigned for me? Let's just see. I bet, I bet things would start closing up as you learn how to be on his mission. Amen? Can I tell you one more story? There was a missionary, a Scottish missionary actually, from the 1800s. And she went to India by herself, caught a boat, went all the way there. And she stationed herself in the middle of a jungle. And she was the only missionary for many, 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 many kilometers. And while she was there, it was very difficult. India, uh, there's millions of Muslims and millions of Hindus in, in India. The most populated country in the world, okay? And while she was there, she was, she was telling people about Jesus, telling them about sin and about salvation, all these things. Now, the community really did not like to hear that message. And so they began to devise ways in which to actually make life harder for her. So there she is. She's in her grass hut with everybody else. And they, sometimes they would actually bring demon-possessed people to come and torment, torment her because they didn't like her and they didn't want her to be around. So this is not a pleasant situation. And yet God had called her to India. So she's enduring these kinds of things, this kind of treatment. And then one night, in the black of night, there, she, she's in bed, and she's just sleeping, and then she begins to hear these sounds, sounds of screaming, sounds of, of pain, of horror, and she's like, oh, no, not again, not again. And so she gets up, and she's like, okay, here we go. She's prepping herself. She's not sure what's coming, but she begins to see there's a group of men coming under firelight, and they're coming straight towards her. And she, she's thinking, okay, here, here, here it comes. But as they get closer, she realizes that the man that is screaming is being carried by all these people, by these men. And it's not, she discerns that he's not demon-possessed. Rather, he's in a lot of pain. And so he comes, and they lay him down in front of her on her porch, in front of her house. And they say, please help this man. And he's in so much pain, there's blood everywhere, and they can't even figure out where's the wound. And so she begins to get to work. Okay, okay, it's not there, it's not there. Eventually she finds that there is a massive thorn that went right through his foot. And, and, and it's been there for a long time, so he's lost lots of blood. He's in tons of pain. And they think he, he's gonna die. And so they, they brought her, or brought him to her. And so she thinks, ah, okay, Thorn, that's the problem. So she runs back into the house to get her forceps 
So she goes to her medical equipment, and she's looking and looking, and she has all these other things, but there's no forceps. She has nothing, no medical equipment that will actually be able to empower her to pull this thorn out. And so, oh, man, where did my forceps go? They're gone. I don't have what it takes. I don't have what I need. And so she starts pacing. She starts panicking. And then she's like, ah, I have to improvise. I have to get this thorn out. And God gives her an idea. And so she goes back outside. She gets, lowers herself down to this man who's howling with pain. And she picks up his foot, bloodied, bruised, everything. Massive thorn. And she leans in and with her teeth grabs the thorn and inch by inch, centimeter by centimeter, pulls it out all the way in front of everybody, all these men. And then the man, oh, right? The pain starts to subside. She goes and she gets coconut oil and she dresses the wound with care. She wraps it in gauze. She makes sure that he's going to be okay. And those men with that, with that guy left as quickly as they had come. And so she just went and went back to bed. The next day, she wakes up early in the morning and there's this whole group of people that start coming to her house. And they're coming not with this uh, anger kind of look on their face. They're coming and they want answers. And they come to her and they say, you, you are a foreign woman. How is it that a foreign woman would put the most precious part of her body on the most Un, or the, the most despised part of a man's body, all just to save an Indian life. How is it that you would go through that in order to save his life? And her answer was simple. She says, well, Jesus told me to. He loves everybody. It was right there that those men and the entire village decided to turn from their faith, from their religion, and start following Jesus. What's my point? This woman, Elizabeth Burke, Gaiki, this woman, she picked up her cross. She scorned the shame and was compelled by love to save this man's life. And it was through that that there was victory in the town. It was through that that the joy that she had been wanting and working towards was actually provided for, that actually came into existence. My question to us today is, wow, are we willing to be that kind of believer? Are we willing to pick up our cross, scorn its shame, Endure it so that Jesus would get what he pays for. Boy, Ethiopia could definitely use some of those kinds of believers. Ethiopia could definitely use those kind of sent ones, those kind of people who would take his mission to that kind of length, who would be so compelled by his love and so driven by his truth that they're willing to get down on their knees and scorn the shame of the cross. The cross is baked in the cake, but the victory and the joy is on the other end. Amen? So my encouragement to you is what are you compelled by? What are, what's driving you? Peter had something driving him in those early days. What are you driven by? Are you driven by his love? Are you driven by his truth to storm the gates of hell and to redeem, transform society? This is what I want to invite you to. If we could all stand, and I'm going to, as Abba comes up, I want to, I want to offer these two things. 
Are you willing to scorn the shame, to endure the cross that God would have you bear? Are you willing to do that so that his church would be victorious, so that his mission would be victorious and triumphant? Are you willing? And then my other encouragement and maybe challenge for you is do you have the joy set before you? that you would actually be willing to carry the cross like Jesus did. Jesus redefined what it means to be the Messiah. And when he did that, he redefined what it means to be a disciple too. The only way that we're able to carry these crosses, carry the burdens, is to have the joy set before us. That's the only way that his mission makes sense. So I call you, in fact, Jesus calls you to be sent. Jesus calls you into mission, but he doesn't call you to do it your way. He calls it to do it his way. And that's that the joy would set, be set before you. Like that woman, she was able to endure different things because she knew there was joy on the other end. Do you know that there's joy on the other end of everything that you're enduring? when you take up leadership positions, when you take that position at work, when you serve your family the way you do? Do you know that there's joy because you are submitting, because you are obeying Jesus in those particular ways, in those particular spaces? I bless you with the sense of God's joy in your mission today. I bless you with the willingness to take his love and to take his truth that would fuel your mission in this life. In Jesus' name, amen.